Thank you for listening to the First Christian Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. Here you will be able to listen to all of our Sunday morning sermons. Be sure to hit the subscribe or follow button so you don't miss a sermon. Enjoy today's message. Hey, I gotta tell you, I am really glad that Chris has been talking about compasses this entire series because I have a secret and I know you're gonna make fun of me, okay? Just, I'm ready for the ridicule, but I don't know how to read a compass, okay? 28 years old, don't know how to read a compass, okay? If you put me in a forest and gave me a compass, all right, I'd be better off at like trying to to find footprints of a person or something like that. Okay, I I cannot read a compass at all. Uh, Funny story, when I was in high school, we went on a camping trip with our youth minister who kind of took five or six of us on this trip, and it was a trip all about full-time ministry. And so we were going to go camping, and we were going to talk about full-time ministry, what that means. Uh, I knew I wanted to go into full-time ministry. We had some others who were kind of on the fence about it. And so he, he scheduled this camping trip. And on this trip, he decided that he did not want to do all the work for us. He wanted to kind of give us ownership of the trip and have us kind of go for it. So he told us, hey, you guys are going to set up all the tents. You guys are going to find the camp. You guys are going to do all that stuff. I'm going to drive you to the spot where we hike from. And then the rest is you guys. I'll be there for guidance, but the rest is you guys. So we get out of the van and we're getting all the stuff. And he comes over to me and he says, John, you're the oldest. Here's the compass. He slapped it in my hand. And I thought, oh, no. And so I, I... I didn't want to be the lame guy that was the oldest one, right? I didn't want to be the guy that was like, oh, no, sorry, I can't read this. Uh, and so what I ended up doing is I did my best, and about a half a mile into the hike, found out we were lost, and uh, we didn't know exactly where we were. And uh, thankfully, uh, Rusty, my youth minister, which, by the way, if you ever find somebody named Rusty, they can read a compass, trust me, okay? But Rusty found our way, and we got to the campsite, thankfully. Uh, we lost quite a bit of time, but I... That, I always think of that story whenever Chris gets up here and starts talking about compasses because I just, they're not for me. But thankfully, I can read the Word of God, which points us to Jesus, and that's what we're going to do today. You don't have to have me leading you by compass, I'll lead you by the Word, all right? So that's, that's the good news today. Today, we're going to be looking at Romans 11, 12, and 13. Unfortunately, we do not have enough time to go through and read all of those. So for Romans 11, what we're going to do is we're going to do kind of an overview. All right, so in this graphic here, this kind of uh, is a graphic from the Bible Project. Has anybody ever heard of, of the Bible Project? A lot of you, some of you. All right, the Bible Project is a group. They put together education material about the Bible to help people understand what the Bible is about, what the Bible means. And so one of the things they do is they put together these videos that where they kind of illustrate and give an overview of the entire Bible. All right, so this is like the finished product, but the, the videos are cool. They like draw it out as they're explaining it. So anyway, if you ever have time and you're ever on YouTube or something like that and you want to go look it up, it's called The Bible Project. You just type in any book of the Bible and they'll have a video that they can, they can show you. All right, but I want to use this one down here, number uh, 11, to kind of help us illustrate chapter 11. You see, and, and some of the highlights of chapter 11 is God's covenant family, all right, Israel, Abraham's family, all right, they're kind of being depicted as this tree, okay? This is the illustration that Paul gives, is that God's covenant family, Israel, Abraham's family is this tree. And those in the family, those in Israel who have rejected Jesus, they, they have refused to move along with how God is moving their family, they have rejected Jesus, they are branches that have been broken off 
of the tree. That's how, that's how Paul illustrates it. He says they have been broken off. All right? But then he gets to talking about the Gentiles, those who were not a part of Israel, and those who have learned and accepted Jesus. And so what he says is he says they have been grafted on. All right? Not that they were set next to the tree, not that they were, they were leaning up against the tree, not that they were, you know, taped to the tree or anything like that, but they were grafted on to the tree. And so Paul goes into this big explanation about this tree and this illustration that he's using. And eventually, at the end of it, he says, one day all of Israel will acknowledge Jesus. He says, one day all of Israel will acknowledge Jesus. Now, my question when I read that is how? How will that happen? And he doesn't give us details of that. He doesn't give us exact details of exactly how that will happen. But what he does tell us is we are told to trust God. We are told to trust God through the situation and that he will work and he will bring it about. And that is our command in that passage is to trust God. And that kind of goes into chapter 12 a little bit because chapter 12 is all about the Jewish and non-Jewish Christians coming together into a unified church community. These, these, Christ, these uh, Jewish people, Israel, and these non-Jews, the, the Gentiles in them, they have to come together and they have to form this, this church community that has accepted Jesus. And it's really difficult to build this church community because they don't have a whole lot to agree on. But what Paul does want them to build their church community on is love and forgiveness. And so chapters 12 and 13 are all about how Paul is showing us that their unity comes from a commitment to love and forgiveness. That through love, through forgiveness, through the, the, the modeled example of Jesus Christ, they can come together and they can be a church community who follows Jesus. And so love and forgiveness is the core of that. Now, love and forgiveness are, are kind of generic Sometimes sometimes we think of love and forgiveness, and, and somebody can be thinking of one thing with love, another first thing about love, and, and they kind of become these generic concepts in our, in our society today. And so what Paul does, and even in the society back then, but what Paul has done is all throughout Romans chapter 12 and chapter 13, he has gone through to describe, essentially, what love and forgiveness is for this community. So we're going to read through that today. Starting at verses 1 and 2, it says... I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed by this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. By testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So my first question when I read that is, is what are the behaviors or the customs of the, this world that, that are tempting us? And, and, and quite honestly, in short, they are selfish desires. Desires for us to, to, to gain or to have what we, we perceive that we need or we perceive that we want. That's what the world tells us. The world tells us that as long as you're getting what you need for yourself, you're good. But that's not how Paul wants them to build the church. Paul wants them to build the church on love and forgiveness, essentially not being selfish, being unselfish with their time, with their efforts, with their money, with all of what they have. And so who brings that transforming process? It's Jesus. Jesus is the one who brings about that transforming process. And then he tells them, do the will of God. And he doesn't get, give him a long description after that. He says, he says, essentially, do the will of God. He says, whatever is good and acceptable and perfect. Again, 
Those are kind of generic terms, but thankfully Paul recognizes that and he keeps going deeper. And so in verses 3 through 8, he kind of goes deeper into those terms. So let's look at 3 through 8. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not have the same function. So we, through many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another." Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophesy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in his generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. When I think of the will of God, I think of when I was, when I was younger and I was choosing colleges. When I was younger and I was choosing colleges, I knew I wanted to go into ministry. I knew that's, that, that was the direction of my life. That's what God was calling me to. But the one part that I really, really struggled with was choosing where to go to college. And so that part became a huge burden for me because in my mind, I had said that, the, that where I go to college is God's will. That I have to make sure I choose the right college to go to, that where I am puts me in the will of God. And it wasn't until years later that I had the realization and, and that I truly believed, not just had the realization, but truly believed, that following God's calling is more about being obedient to your gifting than choosing what you use it. That being obedient to God is more about, being, or, or that, that following God's calling is more about being obedient to your gifting than choosing where you use it. And that's what Paul is getting at here. Is he's telling these people, he's saying, look, be obedient to the gifting that God has given you. If you want to be somebody who has a healthy church family, you have gifting given to you by God, and you have to apply that within your church. And not only does that make you a healthy church community, but that makes you a healthy person as well, because God has designed you, given you gifts for certain things, and that if you are not using those gifts, if you are not using those things, you will never fully become who it is that he made you to be. And so we see this, this part here where, where, where Paul is telling them essentially, in order for the church to be healthy, you yourself have to be healthy in your obedience to God through using your gifts that he's given you. I don't know if you all, all of you have a, have a family with kids or not, or, or some of you are kids, and so you've seen the way your parents have parented you, but I think we can all agree that when people in the, in the family are healthy, the, the family overall is healthier. That when, that when people in the family are, are healthy and being obedient and doing the things that they need to do and, and, and making progress in their life growing, that it makes the entire family healthier. And the same is true for us in our church community. If we are healthy, if we are obedient, we not only help ourselves to grow and to become better, but we also are helping our church community to grow and to become better. And by spreading the news of Jesus to our community as well. And so by you being obedient to your gifting, you're not just helping yourself, but you're helping your entire church family. You're helping the church become who it is that God has, has made the church to become. And it's not just to be healthy through gifting, but there's other ways of being healthy as well, which Paul goes into 
and 9 through 21. Romans 12, 9 through 21 says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For, so do, for by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. There's a lot to unpack in that section there. In that section of scripture, there's a lot of commands, a lot to unpack. But I would guess as I was reading that, or if you were reading that on your own, there would be a portion of that scripture that just kind of tugged on you a little bit. Maybe tugged on your heart, made you feel a little unsettled. And I would encourage you to not ignore that. Because most likely in one part of that scripture, there was something that said that you need to give more attention to in your life. Because there's an area in your life where you can improve, you can grow, and you have to acknowledge it. So what I would encourage you to do is I would encourage you to take that. Don't ignore it. Don't sit here and think, oh, that was just a feeling that I had while the Bible was being read. You know, I'll think about that, you know, maybe some other time. Take that. Don't ignore it. When you get done here today, pray about it. Pray that. Ask God to show you why did he give you that feeling? Why, why did he show that to you? Why did God reveal that to you today? And then finally do that. Take what was in that verse, memorize it, do whatever you have to do to remember that. So that way, as you go throughout your life, you are remembering and doing that portion of scripture in your life. And I'm just going to be transparent with you today. For me, it's verse 15. Verse 15 says, Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. All right? This is not a part of myself that I like very much, but like I said, I'm going to be transparent with you because I think it's something that we need to do in order to understand what I'm talking about here. I am somebody that I will sometimes challenge when somebody is feeling a certain way. Maybe I don't out, you know, outwardly say it, but sometimes in my life I will challenge when somebody is feeling a certain way. If somebody is feeling happy, I'm like, well, I don't know if you should feel happy about that. If somebody's feeling sad, I was like, eh, I don't really think that's that big of a deal to be sad about, but okay. Right? For me, that's something that I don't really like about myself, but it's, a, but, but it's something that I know I do that I'm aware of. And so for myself, that verse 15 there is something that I repeat to myself over and over and over again, because I know it's an area of my life that this portion of scripture has, has made unsettling for me because it's something that is hard for me. And I was opening up to a friend one time telling him about this area of my life and about this verse and how it kind of makes me a little bit unsettled. And he told me, he said, he said, you should go read John 11. I said, okay. I said, that, you know, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. I don't really understand why that's, you know, relevant to this 
portion of scripture here. He said, well, when you read it, he said, pay attention to what Jesus does. Not in the beginning, but, but a little bit later on. I said, well, you know, I know the shortest verse in the Bible is there. You know, Jesus wept. He said, exactly. He said, when Jesus went to go meet those who were mourning over the loss of Lazarus, what did he do? He wept. But what did he know? He knew that he, he, knew that he had the power. He knew that he was going to raise Lazarus up from the dead. He knew that Lazarus wasn't going to stay dead. But what did he do? When he saw them crying in the morning, did he say, Guys, I'm Jesus. I got this. You, you don't have any reason to be upset. No. In that moment, he allowed himself to feel what the people around him were feeling. And he mourned with those who were mourning. He allowed himself, even though he could have easily challenged them and said, guys, I got this. I know exactly what's going to happen. You don't need to worry about a thing. He allowed himself to feel what the others were feeling. And that's something that, that I work on every single day of my life, is to try and allow myself, even if I don't understand why somebody is feeling a certain way, I try for myself to understand how that person is feeling that way and feel that way with them. Not to challenge if it's right or wrong for them to feel happy or for them to feel sad or for them to mourn or for them to rejoice, but that I can be there with them in that moment, being alongside them, feeling with them. And I think that's so powerful. Not just when we take, do, or take, pray, and do, but we also find areas of scripture where Jesus lived out the same thing. And so if you're really going to commit to this today, I, I would ask that in addition to taking what made you feel that way, to, to, to praying about it and to doing it, you would find a portion of scripture where Jesus addressed what it is that you're feeling. And see what he did. Find out how did he react, what did he do, why did he do those things, and really study that in your life to understand it better. And that's, verse, that, that, that's chapter 12. And we get into the fun part, which is chapter 13. And for those of you out there who know your Bible really well, you know what's coming next. So let's, let's get on with it. Here we go. Verses 1 through 7. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those exist have, have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists what God has appointed. And those who resist incur judgment for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Will you have no fear for the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger for who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoers. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, and for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. If you didn't catch that, that was basically Paul saying, obey the government. Be subject to the government. And I know what you're thinking. 
You have a lot of thoughts going through your mind right now. You're saying, well, John, do you not know the men and women who serve in political office? You say, John, do you not know what they stand for? Have you not read the news? Do you know the policies that they are trying to push? Do you know the things they are trying to take away? How could God place them there? Not only tell us to to obey, but also to place them there. How could God place somebody in a position of authority whose policies and values run counter to his word? I want you to lean in real fast. Lean in. Lean in. The secret. He did it all the time. Read the Old Testament. He did it all the time. All throughout the Old Testament. There were kings. There were, there were judges. There were all kinds of people who ran counter to his word. And God still worked. Time and time again. God constantly put kings in power who did not honor him. And not did they just not honor him. But they did horrible, terrible things that were, that were bad for the people around them. And God still Worked. Go throughout the Old Testament. Read Omri. Go, go read Ahab. Go read Jeroboam. Go read First and Second Kings. And you'll, you'll, you'll see what I'm talking about time and time again. Kings were put into power. Even the good kings did terrible things. Kings were put into power time and time again and did terrible, terrible things. But I want to point out Daniel chapter 4, verse 17. In this verse it says, The Most High, the Most High being God, Rules over the kingdom of the world. He gives them to anyone he chooses, even the lowliest of people. You see, people who are empowered didn't get that power on their own. Because there's somebody who still has ultimate power over them. And that's God. God still is sovereign. God still has power. God is still the one in control. It's not your government, it's not your kings, it's not anything that has the ultimate power. It is the power of God that has ultimate power and ultimate control. Look at uh, 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 4 through 7. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel, Samuel being the prophet at that time, at Ramah. And said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. If you don't know this, his sons would have taken over for him, but they were not following his ways. They were not following God. Now appoint to us, for us, a king to judge us like all the other nations. But the, king, but the, but the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a judge to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say all that they say to you, for they have rejected they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Who's the one given the power? It's God. We do not serve lesser kings. We do not serve anyone who is a king under the ultimate king. We do not serve anyone who has power under the ultimate king. The only reason that we serve the government is because God has told us to serve, to to be subject to, to obey the government. The only reason we do that is because God has told us to, because he is the one with the ultimate power, the ultimate authority, the one who is sovereign and in control. And I know what you're thinking, again, because I've had a lot of these same thoughts is, you know, John, maybe the kings weren't so bad back then. Maybe the emperors weren't nearly what they are today. Maybe the government back then wasn't nearly what we're experiencing today. So maybe, maybe Paul said that 
because things were different back then. <laughs> this is the part where we're going to get into some, some details that are, are a, a bit unsavory and not great. So I'm just, like I said, just warning you if you would like, if you would like to, to head out, I get that. But the first emperor that was around uh, Paul's time when he was writing this was Caligula. Caligula murdered his mom and brother. He cross-dressed publicly and demanded applause for it. Uh, a few of these things are also just kind of funny. So um, He appointed his favorite horse as a senator. Um, so I imagine like a stable in Congress. I don't know. That's just in my mind. Uh, he hated the weather and declared war against Neptune. So he mobilized his army to whip the waves and bring home seashells as plunder from his domain. Uh, I don't know about you guys, but I just imagine like Roman soldiers like, yeah, yeah, surfing out in the waves and going out. Anyway, that's just, again, my mind. Um, some more serious things that he did. He, uh, he replaced the heads of statues with his own head. He would cut off the heads of, of statues of different people in Rome. And so instead of like tearing them down completely, he would just replace it with his own head. Um, during the gladiator games, he would select random people from the crowd that he thought it would be entertaining to watch them be torn apart limb from limb by wild animals, and he would throw them into the gladiator games with no defense system. And that was, that was a lot of Caligua. Um, things got a little better with Claudius. Not, not much, but a little bit. Uh, Claudius instituted a maskless, uh, he instituted maskless helmets in the gladiator, gladiator games so he could watch the faces of the gladiators as they died. Uh, I guess you could say he was the first anti-masker. Um, but he experimented with psychological torture uh, for his entertainment. So they obviously had physical torture back there. He was one of the very first experimentalists in the psychological torture uh, seeing family members suffer and things like that in front of him. Uh, and then another thing that he did is that, again, this is just kind of a crazy mind one, but he was so stressed about being assassinated that he banned writing utensils from his presence. So the scribes and those people were not allowed to, to uh, come in and, and write about what was going on because he was afraid that they would kill him with one of their pens. Uh, so they were not allowed to be in his presence, or their, at least their writing utensils were not. Uh, turns out he was actually kind of smart to do that because he was murdered by a guy named Nero's mother. Nero's mother murdered Claudius, so that way he would become emperor. And this was the emperor that was in charge at the time when Paul wrote Romans. So those two were in charge when Paul was alive. This one, Nero, was the one who was in charge when Paul was physically writing and distributing the book of Romans. Uh, so like I said, murdered. Uh, he, he had Claudius murdered. He is one of the most sadistic cruelest and hostile rulers ever against Christians of all time. Um, he, set, he set Rome on fire just so that way he could blame it on Christians. Um, he, he would uh, sit on his balcony and watch people in the place burn while he was playing his harp uh, to entertain himself. Uh, he did many terrible, awful things to Christians, but I'll just give you one of them and, and then you can read about the rest later on. Uh, he dipped Christians in tar and then stuck them on lanterns and lit them on fire as he would stroll about his garden. Uh, he was quoted in saying, Christians make wonderful candles. Um, like I said, many terrible other things he did to Christians, but that's just the one example I'll give. And then finally, uh, this one's just downright awful. He kicked his pregnant wife to death 
uh, and he felt bad about it afterwards. So then he went and found a, a servant boy who looked similar to his wife, had him castrated, married him, and then called him by his wife's name for the rest of his life until he eventually uh, died. So Nero, not a good guy. And really, none of these Roman emperors would get, were good guys. And even in the midst of all of this, we, even within this dumpster fire of a government system, Paul tells Christians to be subject. Even in this system where murder and sexual immorality and, 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 and constant demands, otherwise death, are being taken place, Paul tells them, be subject. He does not tell them to be fearful. He does not tell them to be angry. He does not tell them to have anxiety. He does not tell them to have any of that. He says, be subject. You see, when you submit to governing authorities, you are placing your trust in God. Not because you're submitting to those authorities because of who they are, but because God has commanded you to do so. Now, can you be upset about it? Can you, can you be unhappy that you voted for somebody else and somebody else came into office? Sure. I, I, we're not told to, 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 to feel that, that everything is flowers and rainbows. But to completely to completely divide yourself from subjectification to the government is, event, is against Scripture. And, and ultimately, if your response is to be fearful or angry or anxious, is an insulting reality on the sovereignty of God. By being fearful, by being angry, by being anxious, you're insulting the sovereignty of God. Because you're saying, I don't know if God has enough power to combat this. God always has enough power to combat us. God never runs out of power. He is the sovereign one in every situation. And so if you're thinking to yourself, well, John, at what point, at what point do, we, do we look and say things aren't okay? You see, when the government instructs disobedience to God, we are called to civil, civil disobedience. And if you want an example of that civil disobedience, go read the book of Daniel. Because the book of Daniel has, is filled with civil disobedience. How we do it, how we make it happen, and how we can trust in God even through it all. If the government commands what God forbids, then civil disobedience is a Christian duty. The same goes if, if the government forbids what God commands. It's not a duty to, to, to do anything else other than civil disobedience. That is what we are called to. And like I said, if you want an example, a modification of that, go read the book of Daniel. And in Romans 13, to finish it off, in, in, in verses 8 through 14, it says, Oh, no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments... For the commandments, you shall not covet, commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, or any of these other commandments are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is fulfilling the law. Verse 11. Besides, this you know the time that the hour has come that you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is gone, the day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. 
Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies or drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. When I read that, I think back to Matthew chapter 22. When Jesus says, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. You belong to God. You belong to God. As a living sacrifice, you die to this world. You die to drunkenness. You die to sexual immorality. You die to jealousy. You die to quarreling. You die to those things, but you find life in Christ. You find life in love. And that's the fulfillment of the law. That's the fulfillment of all of this coming together for a church community, that you belong to God, and since you belong to God, you find your life, not in selfish desires, not in the things that the world brings us, but what God gives us, love. And for those of us who believe, every second salvation is closer than the last. If that doesn't bring a smile to your face, I don't know what will. As seconds tick by, salvation is closer and closer. And for those of you who don't know Jesus or haven't accepted Jesus, I want you to know that salvation is slipping through your fingertips. But you have the opportunity to make salvation close today by accepting Jesus, by coming to him and acknowledging that God is the sovereign one. He is the one who has all the power. He is the one that can forgive, who can love, who, who brings love and forgiveness and grace and everything that we in our lives desire, he is the one that brings us to that. Not government, not power, not money, God. So I would encourage you, if you have not accepted the loving power of Jesus Christ, the saving grace, to experience it today. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your forgiveness. Lord, most of all, thank you for salvation. That we have the opportunity to come to you, to know you. And that you don't tell us we have to be good enough. That you don't tell us that, that, that there are qualifications or anything like that. But Lord, that all we have to do is accept you. Is that we come to you. We recognize what Jesus did for us and we accept that free gift of the Holy Spirit. Lord, you are the one who has the power. You are the one who is in control. We don't obey others because we're afraid of their power. We obey others because you have commanded us to. And Lord, I pray that this church community would be everything that you have set us out to be. Lord, that we would use our giftings, that we would be healthy Christians, and that we would acknowledge the things in our lives that make us feel unsettled, that make us feel uncomfortable because we are not seeking them out the way that you want us to. Lord, thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ. And I pray that we would be living sacrifices for you. So in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.